0: I'm excited and humbled and honored to be with you, especially in this context as we continue our study through the book of Psalms entitled, An Exile's Prayer Book. You see, the Psalms were a prayer book for the people of Israel during their time in exile, and as you and I also are living in exile, awaiting Jesus' return, the Psalms serve us in the same way as a prayer book. You see, in God's grace, He's provided us with the book of Psalms, which has been teaching God's people the language of prayer for 2,500 years, the language of lament, the language of praise, the language of confession and repentance, essentially in this book are the words that you and I are to pray. If you haven't already, please grab a Bible, open it up to Psalm chapter 9. If you don't have a Bible and you'd like one, feel free to get up. We have some on the table in the back. Um, that's our gift to you. You can keep it. It's here in Psalm chapter 9 when David is responding in worship to the manifestation of God's judgment. To the wicked. You see, in this text, we're going to see characteristics of God that are often misunderstood. Characteristics that are often we look past. It's common to look past them and ignore, even skip over the truth that God is the righteous judge and the eternal sovereign king of the universe. God is the righteous judge and the eternal sovereign king of the universe. Now, we can't miss this. This is extremely important. Because if you and I are going to have a proper understanding of the gospel, we first need a correct view of who God is. And the psalmist is so helpful here, as he reveals to us not only these crucial distinguishing qualities of God's character, but he also teaches us through this psalm how we are to worship God and why we can worship God. And so my goal this morning is to help make sense of this text, both practically and relationally, especially regarding the truth, that regardless of what we may be going through in this life despite the state of society and culture in the midst of a, midst of it all you and I can celebrate God's goodness and his justice and I hope to help by explaining how we can worship how we are to worship and why we can worship but before we dive into the text and answer those questions would you join me in prayer God, we love you and we thank you for your goodness and your grace. And as we discuss your judgment, your justice, and your righteousness this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would soften our hearts, that you would give us a greater understanding of who you are based on who you say you are in your word. I pray, Lord, that you would reveal to us a greater understanding of our need for Jesus and what it means to love you and to live like Jesus and to lead others to you. I pray this morning as I preach the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight, for you are my rock and my redeemer. God, we love you. You are the only one that truly deserves our worship, our praise, and the glory. And so we, we glorify you this morning, and we thank you for your presence here today. We give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. Have you ever been overwhelmed? It's an easy question, right? Like every one of us should be able to answer that pretty quickly. I think it's safe to say that every one of us at some point in our life have experienced the emotions that come along with the very real reality of being overwhelmed or even being frustrated with the way things seem to work out in life. Maybe for you it's a relational issue, a family member or a friend who seems to get whatever they want despite the fact that they're horrible. Let's just face it. While you do your best to love, to care for people, to be a good citizen, And you seem to get walked all over, and you seem to barely be scraping by. How come they seem to have it so easy? It's just not fair. Or maybe for you, it's work-related. You were working hard, and you're the one that deserved that promotion. I mean, you're never late. You never miss a day. Some might define you as an ideal employee. And the guy in the cubicle next to you who's never there on time, and when he does show up, he spends his day playing solitaire. And he's the one that got the promotion. Over you. You should be fired, not promoted. How unfair. How unjust. Or maybe you're just flat out exhausted and overwhelmed at the state of our world. Overwhelmed by the current social and political realities. There's so much injustice in the world that I can barely keep track. I mean, let's be honest. If you have not been overwhelmed, where have you been living these past two years? Because I would like to go there. Sounds wonderful. The truth is, these realities point to the fact that you and I, we live in a fallen, broken, spoiled, flawed world. A world in which it seems as though the wicked go unpunished and seem to flourish. Now, we must understand that this world is not the way God created it to be. But rather, it's a world that's been broken, damaged by sin. And these frustrating and overwhelming realities are not unique to us, but we see them all throughout, woven throughout this psalm, Psalm chapter 9. You see, David here is looking around, he's asking a familiar question. He's asking, why is it that those who are apparently so bad seem to do so well, while those who are trying to live a good and godly life often seem to barely keep their head above water? Tell me. In this reality, how can we maintain equilibrium? How can we maintain balance and light of the realities that we face each day? In light of all the unideal circumstances, circumstances that reveal our fragility, circumstances that make us wake up to a new day and say, I'm just not sure I could do this today. Well, I'm glad you asked those questions. Look back at Psalm chapter 9, verse 1. David, the psalmist, he says here, I will thank the Lord. In the midst of his overwhelming circumstances, in the midst of his frustrations, David focuses not on his circumstances. He does not even focus on his his present realities, and he's not focusing on himself. Rather, David is preoccupied with who? The Lord. Think about this. This is a stark contrast to the world in which you and I currently live, isn't it? You see, you and I live in a time and space, we live in a culture that teaches us to be preoccupied with ourselves and our circumstances. And the crazy thing is, is that this is even true within the modern American church. We are spending so much time trying to get to know ourselves better. We take personality tests and personal surveys to try to understand our hidden quirks and our hidden uh, wounds, and we hope that maybe by doing so, we can solve our relational issues. And if our relational issues improve, then maybe our circumstances will improve. But the result of this approach is a people who are spiritually stunted. They know a whole bunch about themselves and not a lot about God. And the result is a church of people who uh, 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 the result is a church that is full of people who are spiritually anemic. Who are no use to themselves and no use to the kingdom of God. Now, I'm not saying that there's no good in having a proper self-awareness. That is important. But proper knowledge of yourself is always subservient to a proper understanding of who God is. Because it's only in a correct understanding of who God is that we can have a correct view of our circumstances and a correct view of ourself. I'm reminded of what an old theologian said. He said, man never achieves a clear knowledge of himself unless he has first looked upon God's face and then descends from contemplating Him to scrutinize Himself. For we always seem to ourselves righteous and upright and wise and holy. This pride is innate in all of us, unless by clear proofs we stand convinced of our own unrighteousness, foulness, folly, and impurity. Moreover, we are not thus convinced if we look merely to ourselves and not also to the Lord, who is the sole standard by which this judgment must be measured. Brothers and sisters, it's in our knowledge of God's character. It's in our understanding that God is holy, that he is perfect, that he is just, that he is righteous, that he's full of perfect love and truth. You see, it's only in a correct, biblical understanding of the character of God where we gain the equilibrium needed to continue in our pursuit of loving Jesus, living like Jesus, and leading others to Jesus, no matter what circumstances we may face. And this is because it's only when we understand that God alone is good that we rightfully see that we are not good. And at the foot of the cross, everyone is equal. Everyone is equal. And apart from grace alone, by faith alone, and Jesus alone, all of us deserve the just wrath of God as a penalty for our rebellion against Him. Church, that truth should lead us To live a life completely and wholly surrendered to God. A life that no matter what your circumstances may be, a life that's spent worshiping God, for He alone deserves our praise. Now, let's look back at verse 1, chapter 9. It's here that the psalmist instructs us how it is we are to worship God. David says, I will thank the Lord. Underline this word will. Or if you're taking notes, write it down. I will thank the Lord. This word will speaks to the reality that worshiping God is not just a matter of emotion. Emotion is part of it, yes, but it's not simply emotion. It's a matter of will. David says, I will thank the Lord. You see, praise and worship, a life that is surrendered to God and fully worshiping Him, a life that makes, is a life that makes the right decisions. In the midst of turmoil, David made the decision to thank the Lord. He made the decision to worship God. See, he was not moved by a specific song. His emotions were not stirred from an emotional event like a conference or a camp. Remember, David was going through hell. Remember this. At one point, he was hiding in a cave. At one point, he is he was trying to escape his son who is intent on murdering him. All around him, wicked people are prospering. He had lost his crown. He had lost his integrity. Scholars believe that at this moment when he's writing Psalm 9, that his son, the one who was chasing him and wanting him dead, was now dead himself. And so yes, God has rescued David. But as he did so, his son is dead. What a mix of emotions. Can you imagine? In the midst of all this, David says, despite what I'm going through, despite What I'm experiencing, I'm choosing to, I'm making a decision to, I will worship the Lord. Now, let me ask you a question. Have you ever made a decision to worship God? And I'm not talking about what we are doing together and singing along on a Sunday morning. That's part of it. But have you ever been moved to make a decision to worship God when life is hard and there's nothing that would naturally lead lead you to worship? You still choose to remember who God is, what He's done, and the promises He's made, and you choose to worship Him. I'm reminded of these two guys, Paul and Silas, who were being faithful to God despite some really unideal circumstances. And in Acts chapter 16, it says this in 22, the crowd joined in the attack against them, Paul and Silas, and the chief magistrates stripped these dudes of their clothes, ordered them to be beaten with rods, After they had severely flogged them, they threw them in jail, ordering the jailer to guard them carefully. And receiving such an order, he put them in the inner prison and secured their feet in stocks. Now, if worship is based on circumstances, there is nothing in this reality that should lead these guys to worship. However, in verse 25, it says that Paul and Silas were praying about midnight and singing hymns to God. And it makes a point to say that the other guys in the place heard them. They were singing loud. They weren't ashamed. E. Despite what they're experiencing, they made a choice to worship God. They were unjustly beaten. They were unjustly imprisoned. Yet, they made the decision to sing to God. You see, worship requires us to make a decision. Look back at verse 1. David continues to instruct us on how we are to worship God. I will thank the Lord with all of my heart. Underline, circle that word all. Not some of my heart or part of my heart, but with all my heart. Biblical worship is a matter of totality. It's a matter of completeness, wholeness. It speaks to a life that is completely, holy and fully surrendered to God. It speaks to a life that is not segregated. Where like a pie, I like pie. Cheesecake is my favorite. Is that considered a pie even though it says cake? It's not? She's shaking her head no. Okay. Well, a cake, a pie, (laughs) where you cut it into pieces and hand it out, right? Um, Where your life is like this, where you cut it into slices, and this piece is work me, and this piece is home me, and this piece is Sunday me, and that's God's piece, and then this piece is mine when the lights are off and the doors close and no one's looking. If this is you, you lack wholeness. The Bible would say you lack integrity, because that's what integrity means, wholeness. The truth is, you may appreciate Jesus as Savior, but you're not worshiping Him him as your Lord. For worshiping God requires complete devotion. He does not, and He will not accept half-hearted participants. Now, if this is you, there's good news. There's really good news, because the Bible also says that if you repent, meaning if you turn from your sin and turn to Jesus if you stop piecing yourself out to lesser gods that will never satisfy you God is just and he is faithful to forgive you and to make you whole you see there's a sense in which we have never worshiped God until there is a bursting out of ourselves in giving to the Lord even if it's in the silence of your heart even if it's not observed by anyone but it's within you. This overwhelming passion, this longing desire to proclaim, God, you alone are worthy of my complete devotion. God, I worship you for you are everything and I am nothing. And as a result of this passion and a desire is a desire to live a life that is wholly and fully committed to God. Committed to loving Jesus. Committed to living like Jesus. Committed to leading others to Jesus. Now look back at verse 1. David continues, I will declare all of your wondrous works. I will rejoice and boast about you. I will sing about your name most high. Now bounce down to verse 11 here. David invites us to do the same. He just says, join me. Sing to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Proclaim his deeds among the nations. Now David is worshiping here using five synonymous verbs. He says, give thanks. He says, declare and Proclaim says, I will rejoice, boast. I will sing praise. And all of this speaks to the fact that David, his entire being, is involved in this act of worship. You see, his mind is engaged. He knows what God has done. His praise is sincere. It's genuine. It's authentic. He's not just saying what he thinks he's supposed to say. He's not moving through the motions. But rather, he's... He's coming from a place of authenticity, which tells us that worship is not just wishful thinking. Worship is not going through the motions. No, David's worship is grounded in reality. For what does he say? I will declare all your wondrous works. He invites us to proclaim his deeds among the nations. Church, God's mighty acts in creation and in history are beyond our comprehension, and they're amazing, but even more so on this side of the cross as we We have an uh, an understanding to be amazed by Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection. For he created, or he accomplished the greatest feat in the history of mankind. Reconciling sinners to a holy God and reconciling sinners to each other. David's worship was also public. You see, as he remembers all that God has done, what does he do? He can't keep it a secret. He tells everybody about who God is and what God has done church our worship should propel us to live on mission our worship should propel us to live on mission now the question is begging to be asked why? why should I choose to live a life of complete devotion and worship to God? I mean this question especially rings true given the circumstances that we discussed earlier the overwhelming realities of life we Uh, observe the reality that life is hard. (laughs) We observe the folks that shouldn't be successful who are successful. So why? Why does God ask us to praise Him? I mean, let's be honest. It's kind of weird. It seems kind of weird that God would instruct us to praise Him. Think about this. What kind of God needs His people to praise Him? I mean, don't we look down on people who are so insecure that they need to be built up and told how smart they are? Isn't it true that we mostly admire people who are confident and composed, people who don't fish for compliments? Is this what God is doing, fishing for compliments? Is this what God is like? Is this what we're doing when we're praising God? No, absolutely not, not at all. God is not weak. God is not insecure. He does not need to be built up in order to feel good about himself. I'm reminded of what the Apostle Paul preached in Athens in Acts chapter 17, verse 24. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. Church, there is nothing we have that God could possibly need. God has no needs. And if God did have needs, why in the world would he ask us for? You see, God commands us to praise him because he knows that we instinctively praise the things that we enjoy. Think about it like this. God himself is the most infinitely good, true, and beautiful thing in the universe. There's nothing or no one more glorious, great, and grand to him. So this command to worship God is an invitation to experience complete joy. Joy. Complete pleasure, for praise is the natural conclusion for the things that we enjoy. If you can't cheer on your team with a friend and high-five after a good play, are you enjoying the game as much? That's why people pay an absurd amount of money to go to a game when they have a perfectly good TV at home. A few weeks ago, I was in Kansas City for a conference, and if you know me, I'm a big Chiefs fan, and I had an opportunity to go to the game, and so you bet I took it. I was there by myself, but really I was there with thousands of friends. For every time the Chiefs would make a good play, which isn't much these days, but every time they make a good play, people are high-fiving, cheering, hugging, strangers. This was crazy to me. <laughs> I had thousands of friends. Joy is incomplete until, it expressed, until it's expressed in praise. See, the only reason why someone would not praise God is because they are blind to who He is. The only reason why somebody would not completely devote their life to Jesus is because they're blind. Their hearts are hard. C.S. Lewis makes a good point. He says this in his reflections on the Psalms. He says, The world rings with praise. Lovers praising their mistresses. Readers their favorite poet. Walkers praising the countryside. Players praising their favorite game. Praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, horses, colleges. Countries, historical parsonages, now obviously this is in a different time, we could replace this with other things, but children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, if that's you, please tell me, I'm, I'm interested by that. Even sometimes politicians and scholars. I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is, it's appointed consummation. It is not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. The bottom line is that our joy in God is incomplete until we express it in praise. So why does God ask us to praise Him? Because God is unique as the most glorious of all beings. He is totally self-sufficient. He must be for Himself. And by being for Himself, He is in return for us understand god's goal and desire to bring praise to his name is the same goal and desire to bring joy and pleasure to his people think about it like this what could be the most loving thing that god could give you himself if god could give you the best most wonderful thing if he would love you perfectly then he must give no less than himself God is the one being in all the universe whom seeking his own praise and glory is the most loving, ultimate act. See, God offering us the only thing in the world which can satisfy our longings, himself. Now, we worship God, for in him we find our ultimate joy, and in him we find our ultimate deliverance. Look back at Psalm chapter 9, verse 7. You guys doing okay? You with me? All right. But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established His throne for judgment, and He judges the world with righteousness. He executes judgment on the nations with fairness. Deep within the heart of everyone is a desire for justice. But if we're honest, at some point in life, we have or we will struggle with this question. Is God truly just? We look around and we see what looks like the wicked winning the day, the most unjust and unfair realities there's so much anxiety and so much unjustness in the world but verse 7 and 8 here point to the truth that god is not caught by surprise god is not perplexed god is not confused by the wickedness in our world or the evil in our world and he's not scrambling around for a solution but rather this is this verse is saying what that the lord sits enthroned forever He's reigning. He's ruling. He is the sovereign king. He is in complete control. And one day, all that is done in this stormy world will be brought into light and into judgment. Understand, as king, God will judge the world, and he will do so through David's greater son, Jesus. You see, this text is pointing to Jesus. David's hope is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. As we read about the majesty of God's judgment in Psalm 9, we're ultimately reading about the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ. David here, again, is pointing forward to when God will display His glory through the world by judging the world with justice. And He will do so through Jesus. Church, Jesus is coming again. Jesus will return, and he will return with the omnipotence of God. Jesus is returning with power to judge the living and the dead. And so, we can live with the assurance that God and his righteousness will triumph. And in the meantime, the wicked will only know a short-lived success. I'm again reminded of Acts chapter 17. Again, Paul's preaching in Athens to these philosophers on this place called Mars Hill. And as he did, he applied Psalm chapter 9. He applies this verse to Jesus. Look at verse 30 of Acts chapter 17. Therefore, having overlooked the time of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent. Because He has set a day when He is going to judge the world in righteousness by the man He has appointed. He has provided proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. We have to understand that when we read and study about God's judgment, it is actually pointing to the fact that he is good. It speaks to his goodness. Because God's judgment is an act of righteousness. It's an act of goodness. You see, his judgment is not done out of spite or revenge. For without judgment, you can't have righteousness. Now here's the problem. We can get pumped about this and say, man, the wicked will have their day. I'm a good guy and all these things that are happening around me, well, these guys are in for it. Yeah, but here's the issue. The Bible proclaims that none of us are good. Psalm 14.3 says, all have turned away. All alike have become corrupt." There is no one who does good, not even one. And then the Apostle Paul, he reiterates this. He echoes the psalmist in Romans chapter 3, verse 23, and he says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You see, all of us have rejected God as our king. We've all said no to God. We've all set up our own kingdoms that are opposed to God's good rule and reign. And let's be honest, we learned to do this at a pretty young age. In my house right now, there's a three-year-old, a five-year-old, and a seven-year-old. And every one of them, they're trying to figure out their autonomy. They're trying their best to push their will against mommy and daddy's will. You see, in my home right now, there's four kingdoms that are clashing. And it's awesome. They're clashing, clashing against us, and they're clashing against each other. And sometimes a couple kingdoms come together to try to, to out the other kingdom, and it's it's just a medieval movie. But in the same way, when we set up our own kingdom and we say no to God, the Bible calls this sin. Sin is rejecting and ignoring God. Sin is disobeying God's good rule and reign. And the result of our sin is separation between us and God. And this rift between God and us destroys us and everything around us. Sin is not just, does not just affect you personally. it affects. It's a, it's a communal effect. See, sin makes us rebels. Sin makes us outlaws. And all of us have committed crimes. And the Bible says that all of those crimes are deserving of death. And the truth is, there's nothing that you and I can do to fix this. We can try to be good enough and smart enough and religious enough, but there's nothing that we can do to bridge this gap. We cannot restore things to how they were meant to be. And so yes, we can find comfort in the fact that God will judge the wicked but then we realize, wait a second, I'm also wicked. And because of my rebellion, I'm also deserving of God's justice. So what do we do? If there's nothing we can do, what do we do? Well, look back at Psalm chapter 9, verse 13. David says this, be gracious to me, Lord. David, understanding this reality, he says, God, I need you to be gracious to me. David knows that he does not deserve God's help, but rather it's a matter of God being gracious to him. Think about it like this. Imagine you're a judge. Your job is up to uphold and execute the law. It's the only standard you must adhere to and you must do it unflinchingly. One day a man stands before you, a vile and wicked murderer. The evidence against him is ironclad. There's no doubt about his guilt. And get this, he even openly admits his guilt in court. He says, I did it. And then he says, yeah, I did it. Will you forgive me? And in spite of what the law says, in spite of your responsibility to dispatch justice, you grant him complete forgiveness and let him walk free. Now, if this really happened, you and I would be horrified if a judge actually did this. This is what David is asking God to do. See, in spite of the clear standard of His law and in spite of the overwhelming evidence of our sin and corruption, God forgives us of our crimes, washes away our guilt, sets us free from the due penalty of sin. But the question is begging to be asked, how? If God is just, how in the world can He do this? How can He uphold His own holy law? Somebody surely must pay for the crimes. This brings us to the text that we meditated on earlier this morning. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Church, this is how God can be both the just judge and our merciful justifier. Even though Jesus did not sin, God treated Jesus as if he were a sinner. God poured out on Jesus the full fury of his just wrath against all the sins of all the people who would ever believe in Him. As a righteous judge, He had no other choice. Payment had to be paid. The just God of the universe had to punish sin, and so He poured out the full penalty on His Son so that He might grant forgiveness to everyone and all who would surrender to Jesus not only as Savior, but also as Lord. And understand God's justice demands that every sin be punished. And as a sinner, here's our choice. You can trust Jesus and accept his payment for your sin. Surrender your life to him. Or you can pay the consequence of your sin yourself through eternal torment in hell. Your choice. This is humbling. This is profound. That God treated Jesus on the cross as if he had lived my life and punished him for the sin that I've committed and will ever commit. And he did so to the full satisfaction of his justice. All the judgment, all the torment, all the excruciating punishment that I deserve was poured out on Christ as he died in my place, as he died instead of me. First Peter 2 sums this up really well in verse 24. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that, having died to sin, we might live for righteousness. Through his suffering, Jesus purchased your forgiveness. Through his sacrifice, Jesus cleared a way for you to be reconciled to God. Jesus is the Redeemer. Jesus is King. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the just judge and the merciful justifier. Now, If you have not repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus as Lord and Savior, the reality that God is a just judge should not be comforting. If you're living in opposition to God's good rule and reign, then God's judgment is not a refuge, but a frightening reality. And if this is you, please, please hear my plea this morning. You do not want to face judgment of God as someone who is not trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone. There's good news. Because the invitation to trust Jesus is given right now. All you need to do is turn, trust, and devote. Turn away from your sin. Stop trusting in your own righteousness and trust in Jesus, His life, His death, His resurrection. Trust in His blood that He willfully shed on the cross for you. Trust in His obedience that He longs to give to you. And devote your life to living like Jesus, loving Jesus, and leading others to Jesus. And the good news is that though nobody from the beginning of time has ever been able to keep God's law, Jesus has. He did. So that He might fulfill on our behalf, fulfill those laws on behalf of us, those who would believe and trust in Him. There is only one standard by which all will be judged. And there is only one person whose righteousness has merited eternal life, and His name is Jesus. And He's inviting you this morning to trust in Him today. Church, God's righteousness is our hope. And we can live confidently even when it seems as though the wicked are winning the day, we know that God will have the final say. So rest in Him today. Trust in Him today. Let's pray. God, we thank You. Overwhelmed by Your goodness and Your grace. We're so thankful that You loved us despite the fact that we are outlaws and rebelling against You. We thank You for making a way for us to be reconciled to Yourself and also to each other. We thank You for this gift, the church that You've given to us. We pray, Lord, that You would be glorified through our lives that this would be a moment in which those who may have not turned to You before will turn from their sin and trust in You. Those who have maybe been following You culturally will see that half-hearted devotion is not what You desire. And I pray, Lord, that from this day, Mission Church will be united as we love You and live like You and are focused on the mission of leading others to You. Lord, we give You all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.